I love being a parent. Although it has brought things out in my speech that I would never have thought I would say. Never would have thought I had to say. And you can Google some of these things. I want to be clear that some of the things I'm going to say here I found online, they're not things I said to my kids. I interposed them with things I actually said to my kids to protect my kids so that you wouldn't know. But would you ever really have to say, why would you want to collect boogers? (laughs) Or please let your sister out from under the couch cushions. Or let's not eat things we find in our underwear. Or why would you cut your eyelashes? Or a pretend helmet can't actually protect your head. Don't throw pancakes at your mother. Please stop eating the sunscreen. And my favorite, and this does come from my family, unfortunately, but I will not tell you which child. Why did you finger paint from your diaper onto the big screen TV? That was not fun to clean up. Well, it is this kind of speech here that Paul, not the first time in 1 Corinthians, that he is speaking to the church. He's saying things he wishes he didn't really have to say. He wishes that they really understood the truths he taught them already, but people need help. In fact, this is a section that Judy just read similar to the end of the long section from chapter 8 to 10. Do you remember the section on eating meat sacrificed to idols? And at the end of that section, Paul gave specific instructions, almost like a parent having to really, really tell the people how to do it. You remember this. Well, if you eat, you want to eat, and no one brings it up, well, then this. But if you meet and someone eat, and you want to eat, meet and eat, and someone wants to raise a conscience question, then don't eat. Do you remember that section? This section's a little bit like that. It's, it's from chapter 12 through 14. It's the end of the section. And here at the very end, Paul is saying, here, well, let me give you just some final instructions, okay? We've got a lot of guests here this morning, friends and family and stuff, and so it's good that I actually had laid out uh, what were the big points of chapter 12 through 14 we've gotten to at this point. Well, he's been talking about spiritual gifts and how they work in the body. And I have just seven thoughts to remind you of the seven sermons that we've had that have brought, together to the, brought us together to this point. You don't have to write these down. I can give them to you later. This is just a summary of how we got here. Number one, if you're in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. They were given to you by the Holy Spirit. Number two, our spiritual gifts vary greatly, and they help us accomplish God's purposes. Another sermon, our spiritual gifts are connected, and they work together in our local churches. Number four, love is the driving motivation for spiritual gifts, not selfishness, not showiness. Gifts are for others, not for you. Number five, when we know God fully one day, there will be no need for gifts. Number six, we should strive to excel in building up the church with our gifts. We should do our best. And then last week we learned prophecy is better than tongues because everyone can learn and benefit together. Prophecy edifies the church. Well, what's my big idea this morning? My big idea is this. 
we should build up the church by using our spiritual gifts in an orderly way. In a decent and orderly way. That's the main thought that Paul has for us here this morning. While we're seeking to build up the church, we must do it, use our gifts in an orderly way. All right, let's jump in. Point number one. Paul wants us to see that there is a need for enthusiastic participation in worship. An enthusiastic participation in worship. Paul begins with another appeal to his readers as brothers to continue his plea for their compliance, and he asks a question in verse 26. There's actually two sets of questions, one in verse 26, and one uh, comes a little bit later in verse 36, I believe. But We start with the first question, what shall we say then? Paul uses this device from time to time to say, what practical conclusions should we reach from this preceding discussion that we've had that has covered almost three full chapters. And as he begins to define this in the middle verses, he pronounces, or he answers that in verse 40. He says, hey, everything should be done decently and in order. Many of us have heard that verse, quoted that verse, used it in business meetings when needed, and so it's been helpful to us. As Paul begins to define this in the middle verses, he pronounces a policy that everyone should come to worship ready to use their gifts. Whether it's a hymn, or a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation of tongues. You read the verse there. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. You see, we've learned this already, but when the Corinthian church comes together, they are in danger of having chaotic meetings. Everyone shows up, various individuals, with their own plans of how to participate in the worship service gathering. The result could be disorder. The result could be that believers are not actually built up because it's unintelligent. Paul exhorts the church to use gifts in an orderly way so that the gifts could actually build up the church. And there are five examples given. A hymn is something we've done today. It refers to singing praise to God. A lesson refers to teaching the Bible. It would be similar to Acts 2.42 where we are told that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That we would study the Word of God. Number three, a revelation. Probably this refers to a spontaneous, God-given prophecy at that time in the church. Number four, a tongue. Refers to speaking in a language that the hearer did not know. I think Brian said last uh, week, if suddenly he were given, I stopped speaking in English and I started speaking in Arabic. But I do not know Arabic. That would be the gift of tongues or languages. Incidentally, every time in the New Testament, just so you know, it helps me to make sure I interpret the Bible well. When I see the word tongue, I also insert in my mind the word language. Because it is the gift of languages. In the, new, in, the, in the first century. And then fifth, an interpretation refers to someone explaining what someone who just spoke in this language had said. Now Paul is clearly going to give some restrictions on this participation, and his point is that everything would be done decently and in order. But I would like to stop for a minute and speak to us in our first century context about how this 
liturgy, this order of service is very different how we practice church today, yes? Very different. Perhaps there's something we've lost from the first century. Here in America, many churches have what I would call performance-based ministry, where this is more like a concert than a service. There is something perhaps we've lost and Brian and I talk about this from time to time. I want to make sure you understand we want as many people to participate as possible. This is not a concert. This is not a performance. You are not here to receive. You are here to give. I would ask you rhetorically, how enthusiastically did you come to worship this morning? If I contextualize just a little bit, did you come ready with a hymn? With a lesson? With a tongue? With a, did you come ready enthusiastically to share? How do you obey the words of the author of Hebrews? Through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and share, with what, you, share what you have. These sacrifices are pleasing to God. Friends, this is the spirit of New Testament worship. I would ask you applicationally, do you sing with gusto? Are you here to sing? Did you come to give, to worship? Do you read God's Word that we just read with enthusiasm and conviction? When Pastor Brian prayed, did you pray in the Spirit fervently and sincerely? Do you use your gifts in the church ministry? God wants this spirit that perhaps because our Western were a little bit more buttoned up, how would it be different if you had to come ready to do something? Each one came to share. That would change the way we approach church. And I think that there is, in order for us to feel that tension of the chaos of the New Testament church, it's important for us, and that needed to be regulated, we might miss that because, you know what, I don't think we need a lot of regulation. How about you? We're doing okay. At the same time, the gathering does need to be orderly. It does need to be decent. That's the whole point of this passage. All activities in worship must be practiced, as Paul said, for the building up of the church, not for individual glory. The Spirit grants gifts to believers for the purpose of building up the church. To exercise any spiritual gift in a way that does not build up others is to misuse the gift and corrupt the worship of God. So God help us to come with enthusiastic desire to participate, to have something to share. But, point number two, there must be a mutual deference and cooperation in worship. There must be uh, guidelines and order. Just a few, this is verses 27 to 35. I'm going to take them all together for a couple of reasons. The reasons are, I know that everybody focused on, and thank you, Brian, for having Judy read the passage that says that women should be silent in church. That wasn't lost on me. Um, but um, I'll get him back somehow. Um, but I will also say to you that did you notice that they weren't the only people that were told to be quiet? 
Did you notice that there were some tongue speakers that were told, keep silent? And there were some prophets that were told, keep silent. And there were some ladies that were told, keep silent. So it wasn't equal, it wasn't just one lens. You understand that? There's also a series of if-then statements. If, 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 if. There are six ifs and eight lets. L-E-T-S, like let it be, let it be, let it be. That sounds like a Beatles song. Okay, so that, that is why I'm taking this all together. Let's read it together. And now that I've said that, I want you to notice the moments when a variety of people are told to keep silent. And I want you to notice the if-thens. And I want you to notice that Paul is saying, let, 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 let. He's making commands. Verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made by another sitting there, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The ESV translations may sound to some English readers like Paul uh, is commanding the Corinthians to allow certain activities. Let this happen, let it happen. It sounds kind of passive, right? That is not the case. All English commands are in the second person. We use them that way, like be quiet means you be quiet, right? It's understood. Or come here means you come here. This is all in the third person, and English, English doesn't have a way to, to command in the third person. That like, they must be quiet or she should come here. So this translation, let, does not mean allow. It is more like how most English translations would render the Hebrew commands in Genesis chapter 1 by God, who said, let there be light. Do you, do you think God was just allowing the light to happen? <laughs> or was God calling the light out? Of course God was calling the light. He was saying, let it be. God did not do it passively so these lets are commands you understand third person commands they're not just permissives now i would bet you are wrestling with this in your spirit in some ways and i would like to uh to share a, a short section from a commentator i read this week is a man named Stephen um about order and disorder and remind you of the value of restrictions People live their lives each day effectively because there are discernible patterns and routines. There is order of the workplace, order of schedules, order of public transportation. At a restaurant, food is ordered because the person ordering the food is simply placing herself under the order of the restaurant that will ultimately deliver the food for which we are paying. Despite the fact that individuals desire order, everyone approaches it differently. And there are three different ways to look at this. Number one, some people want to pursue freedom for the sake of freedom. Freedom for the sake of freedom is chaos and anarchy. Some reject all forms of order and say they are enslaving. Many creative people lean this way, although everyone is dependent on order whether they know it or not. Two, 
order just for the sake of order. It's tyrannical. It's no fun. It's why I parent sometimes. Some reject all forms of freedom as a sign of weakness. A lot of type A personalities might lean this way. It's unlivable because ultimate order that people seek is out of reach and uncontrollable and ultimately tyrannical, dictatorial. Three, order for the sake of freedom is liberating. This is liberty. This is the way Paul seeks for us to see this. Order is a way to achieve freedom and it is a means to an end so that through order we could have the freedom to be creative. Here's one illustration. Think about the streets that people walk down each day in a city. The pedestrian needs to know certain things. So do I if I'm driving downtown Indianapolis. Whether a street is a one-way or a two-way, Lori, be quiet. Um, (laughs) Guilty as charged. Whether there are checkpoints, stop signs, traffic lights, guideposts, speed limits, caution signs, crosswalk, crosswalk signals. If we choose the anarchy way of looking at things, freedom for the sake of freedom, and we embrace that, the streets will be dangerous and unusable, yes? Imagine what a mess it would be if individuals removed every traffic light, every stop sign, every crosswalk, every speed limit sign, every walk signal, gridlock, multiple accidents, injuries. However, to go to the other extreme, if you have a tyrannical way of doing it, freedom, forced order, the streets will be unpleasant, like a military state. They might be orderly, but no one will go there because no one would look forward to walking around and enjoying themselves. But what we have is an order and freedom system. So there are cars working and pedestrians walking, living in relative harmony. People can get where they need to go in a decent amount of time, but if they want to stop and win to shop and enjoy themselves, they can. You can get places and you can linger. The freedom one experiences is dependent upon and enabled by the order set down by the city planners. This is similar to what Paul is saying here, that yes, there should be this wonderful, free, creative worship, but there are some guidelines. Does that make sense? And I think all of us would embrace that with a thought like that. Well, Paul speaks of three different case studies. Number one, he wants to talk about restraints on speaking in tongues. Verses 27 and 28. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Tongues have ceased and have very little relevance, if any, to our... um, service here today but we will preach the word if any speak in a tongue let there be only two or three at most and each in turn and let someone interpret but if there is no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to god so paul gives directions to anyone who did speak in a language the gift of languages was alive and well at that point for the sake of order and edification paul said hey only two and at the most three should be allowed to speak I read an article this week of a, uh, of a service that boasted, a contemporary service that boasted 1,500 tongue speakers were there. And I thought, well, that's only 1,497 too many. Even these few were not allowed to speak simultaneously, one at a time, only if there was an interpretation. In the absence of such order and interpretation, those speaking in languages should keep quiet in the worship service, speaking only to themselves and to God, not expressing within the church what was not understandable. It was unintelligent. 
So in these list of five items from the previous verse, verse 26, each one actively builds up the church except for languages, except for tongues. Paul had said that, that tongues builds up yourself, but prophecy builds up others. And we want everything to be done for building up. Now, I don't want to be dismissive of this gift, even though I believe that it has ceased. As we think about the gift of languages, we've not spent a lot of time actually talking about the origin of it. It was such a great gift at the time, such a wonderful and beautiful expression of God's heart for the people that crucified His Son. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all rushed together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The modern charismatic movement has caused us all to hear this word and not understand and put the word language there. We do that, right? What's your native tongue? We mean language. And they all spoke in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They'd come to celebrate the Passover. And at the sound of this multitude, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. You know, that's exactly the same Greek word, tongue, language. I'm not making this up. It's the same word. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? They don't know our languages. How is it that we are hearing them in this native language? What a wonderful gift from the Lord. That He would do this miracle on behalf of His Son and the Gospel for these people. Peter preached that day, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised Him up. And they're all hearing this in their own language. It's beautiful. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let the whole house of Israel therefore know that cert, for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, the one whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, one of the greatest questions you could ever ask, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, change your mind, change what you thought about Jesus. You crucified him. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We learn in 1 Corinthians the gift of languages was a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, a gracious act of God to confirm the gospel ministry, the forgiving ministry of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving Jews who crucified him. If that was its goal, it had very limited effectiveness in the gathered assembly 13 years later because sign, tongues was a, languages was a sign for unbelievers, not for believers. 
Isn't God great? And this is prophesied in the prophet Isaiah. With men of strange tongues, I will speak to you. The very ones who crucified him, God is reaching out for. Not willing that any should perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. It's beautiful. Number two, some restraints on prophecy, interpretation, and discernment. Verses 29 through the start of 33. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, then let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That statement there, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, is similar to the statement at the end. Let all things be done decently and in order. So now Paul focuses in on these verses on prophets, not tongue speakers, but prophets. Once again, two or three prophets was enough. Others were to carefully weigh all prophetic speech. Paul was concerned that prophets were respectful towards one another. You see that if someone received a revelation while someone else was speaking, the first speaker was to stop. Prophets were to wait their turn so that everyone might be instructed and encouraged. This is not the only place in the New Testament where we're told to be careful about the words of God we hear. Often, the Bereans are commended to us, those who heard the Word of God and searched the Scriptures to see if that was true, what was said. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. The Apostle John wrote, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see if they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And that is certainly true. He goes on to say, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. If I could stop just for a moment again before I continue the same way I did at the beginning and, and remind us of something here. Can you now imagine, can you put yourself back in the first century? Languages, prophecies, hymns, lessons. Do you know God's Word well enough that you could weigh the prophecies? So you get to sit there and just listen. And incidentally, especially this morning, I don't want you to talk back, okay? (laughs) But can you imagine the dynamic where you had to be gifted enough in God's Word to know and to offer commendation or condemnation on what was said? How would you do? This is a challenge to us. This is a challenge to me that the expectation in worship is that I would know my Bible well enough to recognize the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of the Antichrist. Do you feel it? How well do you know the Word? And are you growing in the Word? And are you reading the Word? So that this would be true of you. That you would be competent to function in Corinth in 50 A.D. Getting back to the text, verse 30, so if someone's prophesying and God reveals something to another person, the one speaking should stop, because it would be confusing and disorderly for two or more people to prophesy simultaneously. You're beginning to get the feel for why people should be quiet in church. The theme is beginning to become clear. It's because it's disorganized. You should be quiet. It's because it's disruptive. 
You should be quiet. It's because it's dishonest. You should be quiet. It's because it's disgraceful. You should be quiet. These are the things that Paul is against. These are the things from a principle standpoint that God does not want in our churches. There's that interesting reference here that the spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. Did you see that? Some of you are thinking, what does that mean? I think that Paul is anticipating the objection that prophets can't control themselves when the Spirit comes on them. Well, if the Spirit comes, I've got to speak. Paul says, no, the spirits of the prophets are under control of the prophets. In other words, within limits, the prophets can control how and when they prophesy. Do you know why this is true? Because God puts his name on it and says, I am not a God of confusion but I'm a God of peace. I'm not going to create a situation where I'm giving messages to my messengers that forces them to talk all over each other so that it is not intelligible. It's the absolute opposite of what we're learning about, isn't it? God would not do that. So there were some restraints on prophets. Now let's get to this. How fast can I get through this? Just kidding. Restraints on women evaluating prophecy. You hear what I just said there. Restraints on women evaluating prophecy. And I think that's the key to the interpretation here. Let's address this hard to understand and controversial verses regarding ladies and the worship service. I will tell you that I spent probably 11 hours of my sermon prep on this issue. And you're going to get four minutes. Okay? Because that's all we have time for. So if you want to talk more about it, uh, I'd be glad to. What Paul is commanding here, some people want to say it's entirely cultural and not at all relevant to today. That can't be true. Paul says it's the practice of all the churches. Do you see that? Verse 14, 33. As is the practice of all the churches. And this is something Paul says repeatedly throughout 1 Corinthians. You might remember chapter 4, verse 17. He said, this is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child unto the Lord, to remind you of my ways in the Lord as I teach them in everywhere in every church. This is what he says. In chapter 7, verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and what God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. He talks about all the churches throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. What does it mean? It means it wasn't just a cultural situation located at Corinth that we can just dismiss. Paul adds a qualification to his previous command. I think it means that women should not evaluate prophecies audibly during church meetings. I'll get to that. What I do know is that Paul can't mean that women must never speak at all during a church meeting because in this same letter, back in chapter 11, and you guys were great uh, with your head coverings that day, we were told that women can pray and prophesy during the church meeting with their heads covered. It was a hard thing to understand, but there was this approval of Paul that women were praying and prophesying. You might remember this. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Judge for yourselves. It is proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. In fact, we could look at other passages, Acts 2, 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Listen to this. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In the book of Acts, 
we learn on the next day, uh, the physician Luke writes for us, we departed and came to Caesarea of Paul's ministry, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So there is biblical weight here. In fact, regarding the active role of women in ministry, David Garland writes in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, listen to this, this is a little run-through, a biblical survey of women of note in the New Testament. How can women like Yodia and Syntyche, Philippians 4.2, Prisca, Romans 16.3, Mary, Romans 16.6, Junia, Romans 16.7, and Tryphena and Tryphosa, Romans 16, function as what Paul calls them co-workers in the churches if they can't speak at all? How can Phoebe fulfill her role of a deaconess in Romans 16 if she cannot speak out in the assembly? Colossians 4, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15, how can a woman who's named Nympha, who is influential enough to host a house church, have been required to be silent in her own home? Also, Prisca, the wife of Aquila in Romans 16. So what is Paul forbidding here? He is forbidding something. Well, In the context here, tongues need to be interpreted. Prophecies need to be weighed and discerned. In this context, Paul's statements about the role of women in corporate worship need to be read. As I just said, whatever Paul may be saying, he's not saying that women ought to be silent at all times because he's already encouraged them to pray and prophesy. The XP Expositor's Commentary explains it this way. I thought it was very helpful. Paul is talking about the authoritative weighing of prophecies. It seems that there was a situation in Corinth when the prophecies were being weighed, presumably by the male leaders in the church. Certain women were interjecting, asking questions, perhaps even challenging the rulings. I can't tell you exactly what was happening. I wasn't there. I don't know for sure. But that's why I said before, before we got here, in the process, what is Paul forbidding? He's forbidding disruptive, dishonest, disgraceful he's forbidding things that are against decent and in order in the broader cultural context where women were generally submissive in fact you all know this i'm sure uh, in that culture women would not have spoken church at all married women would not talk to men who weren't their husbands this would have brought shame on the husbands of such women it would have been dishonorable if it were a wife and a husband Can you imagine this scenario? That I'm prophesying and Lori's interpreting? That's my wife. And what if there's discussion regarding whether the prophecy is valid or not? This in a public way is dishonoring church leadership? She'd be challenging her husband by challenging the authority? But Paul doesn't want women to be left in the dark. And, and quite honestly, if we had time to, uh, to speak clearly about this, the New Testament church was liberating and entirely freeing for the role of women in ministry relative to practices before. Paul's appeal to the law here is an appeal, he says, and, and again, I'd love to think this was just absolutely cultural, but look at the end of verse 34. He says, as the law also says. So in his mind, this is rooted in some type of Old Testament 
passage. Well, if we do some cross-referencing, we come to probably believe this is Genesis 2. Not a question of function, but a question of nature. The best cross-reference for this passage in the context is 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Listen to these verses. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. To evaluate prophecies audibly during a church meeting. Here's the best summary sentence I have. Ready? If you've... If you've tuned out a little and want to come back, listen. To evaluate prophecies audibly during the church meeting would be inappropriate because this will be fulfilling the role of an elder or pastor, as we commonly call them here at Heather Hills. Paul supports this argument with the phrase, as the law also says. He He references this in 1 Corinthians 11, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And much more could be said about this, but um, the clock marches on. Nobody loves restraint. How about you? Do you like being told no? I think about, I I don't know why this rings out on me, but any type of refreated phrase that begins with the word you I hear this Oprah Winfrey thing in my back, uh, back, in the back of my head. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. That's welcome. You be quiet, you be quiet, you be quiet, you be quiet. That is not welcome. It is un-American. And I think that Paul anticipates that and moves right to the next point. Authority. Verse 36, if you're bristling right now, if you don't like the spirit of the word of God, then you need this reminder. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, He should acknowledge that these things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. The second question is asked, was it from you that God's word first came? Did it start with the Corinthians, Paul says? Paul knows it did not because who first preached the word to them? Paul did. But I know that's not what Paul meant. He could have been appealing simply to the human, the human instrument. But it's deeper than that. Where does God's word originate? No prophecy originated with the intent of human, but holy men of God were speaking as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we're not the only ones to whom God's word is reached. So Paul closes his discussion on spiritual gifts and worship He objects to those who assert leadership and want to point in other directions. Of course, the answer to these questions is an emphatic no. I am not the authority. I am not the author of the Word of God. The Corinthians had received the Word from others, including Paul himself. For this reason, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the proper attitude towards the apostles of Christ. Everyone who considers himself a prophet or spiritually gifted was to remember that Paul was an apostle. And what Paul wrote was the Lord's command. Prophecies were to be weighed and tested, but the apostolic word was the word of Christ. 
confirmed by miracles, commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself. Neglecting apostolic authority had serious consequences. Paul said that anyone who ignored his authority would be ignored or rejected by God. It's interesting here in the context because be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Now it shifts, I don't hear you. You feel that? Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Oh, you're still speaking? I reject you. I ignore you. I don't hear you. The Corinthians thought they'd received a unique word from God. They thought they knew better than the apostle. They believed in their own wisdom. They thought they'd arrived at a better way to worship than the one they had received. Chaos. Christians risk the same error we do today any time we dismiss the teaching of the Bible. Whether it be on spiritual gifts or the distinction between men and women. Gender roles. God made the man first and the woman second. Could he have done it in reverse order? He did not. Even though the Corinthians viewed themselves as having great spiritual insight and importance, Paul said if they cannot submit to his commands as the work of the Lord, they are not actually who they think they are or who we thought they were. If anyone refuses to recognize that what Paul writes has divine authority, then God does not recognize that person. Paul warns that though such a person may insist that he or she is prophesying in the name of the Lord, God might reply on Judgment Day, I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Psalm 1, verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, what's the final summary here? Verses 39 and 40, Paul. Again, these are things Paul wishes he didn't even have to say in a sense. Like, there are just some practical applications out of this. All that he said already. Verse 39 and 40. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. And don't forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So, in final summary here, Paul appeals to the Corinthians once again as brothers. Family. Please show your love and concern to one another because it's Paul's love and concern that is motivating his plea for their obedience. He says, you should be eager to prophesy. Why? Well, we learned that last week. It benefits the church. It's intelligent. He emphasizes it. He says, be eager. And even now, here, he says, well, it is an active gift. Don't forbid it. Can you feel the contrast there? I mean, one's an endorsement. One is an allowance. This is an allowance. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. Less enthusiastic. All these and other matters related to worship, everything should take place in a fitting and orderly way. Why? Because God 
is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. And aren't we thankful for that? I invite the praise team back to the platform. We are prepared to finish our worship service. After the service, uh, if you would have a spiritual need, something you would like to pray about, over here to my right, back there behind that uh, divider is a uh, couple of chairs and a, a private area where a counselor can visit with you. So what? Final thoughts here. We only worship God And we can only approach God because we belong to the body of Christ because we believe in the sacrificial blood of Jesus. That ought to motivate us in ways that I could not begin to mine out for you. But I hope they would produce enthusiastic worship. Spiritual gifts in worship are for the purpose of building up the church not for your individual fulfillment. We don't serve for self-actualization or to be noticed by others. To feel good about ourselves or to have others feel good about us. True service is for the building up of the body that God would receive glory. Disorderly worship does not build up the church. It doesn't present present a good witness to the gospel our worship must praise and honor god it must build up and honor the church we should always refrain from doing things in church in our church community that don't build one another up even if they build us up personally that's not the role of a spiritual gift we should desire earnestly and pursue spiritual gifts to use in worship Jesus' self-sacrifice is a great picture of this. In fact, it's a picture of his greatness, not his weakness. And he was willing to submit himself to the Father and do the will of his Father. And when we as his disciples are willing to submit to the authority that God has established within his church for the sake of ordered freedom, there's harmony in the church. And it's glorious. Thank you, Father, for your word. May it go deep into our hearts and produce a righteous harvest for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.